This is Season 6, Episode 2, Resilience and Recovery with Arrowin Ambrose. Arrowin, welcome to the podcast. Mm, thank you so much. I'm really grateful to be here. Yeah, and I was just reading over um, kind of what you'd shared when you booked in this time and we'd invited mm. you on and um, really excited because I've actually been having a lot of conversations recently again it seems you know these themes crop up in your life again and again and just a lot of conversations recently with folks just feeling really frustrated about that dissonance between doing what we do when we know what we know right and I just feel Mm -hmm. like you're the perfect person (laughs) but I'm wondering how you're doing today and and yeah just how you are in your beingness Oh yeah, thank you. I'm I'm well. I did, you know, um I was able to spend time with my daughter who's 10 going on like 30 and uh you know, eating dinner and just chatting and talking and that's always very co-regulating for me, so I feel very settled and very you know, um, alert, but like in a good way to do this podcast. So a little activated. I mean, I always talk in, <laughs> I'm such a nerd. I always talk in nervous system states now because that's the work I do. So I'm always like, well, I'm a little activated, but it's in a pleasant way. Yeah. Like approaching that kind of play learning space. Right? I'm the same. Absolutely. When someone asks how I am and I actually answer honestly, folks are always so taken aback like oh what right (laughs) (laughs) they're like that's a lot more deep yeah detail than we (laughs) we just want to know if you're okay or not (laughs) but I actually want to start there because that because that's already like piqued my curiosity to Mm -hmm. feel as though being in a parenting dynamic can be a co-regulated one tell me more about how you got there because I'm sure that's like the holy grail of parenting right yes absolutely I think that you know, I was certified in the Resilience Toolkit, I believe it was late 2017, early 2018, or I think I was certified end of 2017. I was asked to be on staff in 2018. And um, because I know how you, you came about, you are aware of Enkim and Defo and her incredible work with embodied um, activism and sort of uh, her lens, her social, her her all her somatic work grounded in social justice. And mm-hmm. so um, once I was certified in the, resi- I mean, I had this hour long conversation with NCHEM kind of mid 2017 and it changed pretty much the trajectory of my life and my parenting, I would say. Absolutely. But part of that was I just, her graciousness and her um, curiosity and her just, gratitude and being was something I followed. And so anyway, I got certified something called the resilience toolkit and that framework for approaching stress and trauma in the body was revolutionary for me in a lot of ways because it really uh, centered um, kind of a, a framework of being able to ask yourself, what am I feeling? How do I know? Is it serving me? And if not do a tool, did it work? How do I know? And that was like, coming from a yoga centered, you know, um, breath work attempter kind of background where I, and meditator, a daily meditator for eight to 10 years of TS, TMS. And then, um, and then Vipassana, I didn't realize a lot of the tools I was doing because of my state were actually making me worse. Hmm. 
So being able to find for myself what worked for me and what didn't was super revolutionary. And then the whole training is about self-awareness and self-regulation. And so what I found was how much my settled nervous system was one of the most powerful tools I had. For one, um, being a facilitator that was going into these really high trauma spaces like maximum security prisons and probation camps and working with the young women who had experienced um, exploitation in many ways, uh, just knowing that my nervous system would impact these spaces in a, in a different way. And then also to realize how much that impacted my daughter was like radical, you know, because often I thought parenting stuff was about controlling her behavior. And then I didn't realize how much she would do not, she would mimic what I did, not necessarily do what I said. Mm. I, um, I'm kind of enamored by this conversation already because I feel as though uh, there's just this, this great misunderstanding, I think, and I have a lot of resonance with the going down the yoga route and the wellness route and doing a lot of practices to try and stay regulated without recognising, like, what I'm trying to do through that practice, you know, it's mm-hmm. kind of like, and I, and I, I've done the toolkit training as well. And I think mm. not the facilitator training, just the toolkit, but mm-hmm. what I really love is that there's a framework and a toolkit, but it is founded on self-awareness. So, you know, even that invitation to like drop in that we so often hear now in kind of every space you're in, it's like, well, that's kind of really traumatic for a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> like Absolutely. Me, right? Even after right. years of meditation, tell, someone telling me to drop in when I haven't moved my body and I haven't, yes. like, shaken and stretched and, like, it's, you know, I'm just going to go up in dysregulation, not down. So I, yeah. I think that we're kind of at this really exciting place now with the trauma awareness as well that we have of mm-hmm. beginning to create praxis or practice that is really focused on the feedback that comes to our own individual systems and I'm yes I guess what I'm really curious about is how you use the toolkit particularly in recovery because I think Mm. that we're all in recovery a lot of us from culture of of a whole range of things but I'd love to hear (laughs) how you adapted that framework Yes. I just want to say real briefly, though, that I feel like all like trauma informed principles and somatic experience, you know, all the all the somatic world. And also, I feel like restorative justice, those three areas are all, you know, pretty much taken from indigenous wisdom. So in a way, it really does. And it was colonized. Right. And and changed and altered as yoga was. But I just want to acknowledge that the, the inherent wisdom in that and that there was a, an awareness that we needed to move our bodies. There was an awareness that we needed to shake. There was an awareness that we needed to do this in community. That was super helpful, right? Like that mm-hmm. co-regulation piece. And, and so I guess to kind of, I don't know, transition to the recovery space. So I've, I've been personally involved in the recovery space for over two decades and have found um, I had a deep, deep personal relationship to sort of the gold standard of recovery for a long time and became very rigid in that methodology and ideology and became very dogmatic. I'm not saying that it is that way, but it became that way for me. And 
and sort of my journey when I discovered the toolkit too, I found that there were three things that were radically uh, missing from the recovery community that I was in. And one, the first thing was embodiment, like an, like an acknowledgement of a dysregulated nervous system that um, recovery is actually incomplete with a dysregulated nervous system because, and this is something that's talked about in some of those spaces, but the whack-a-mole of recovery where, you know, you let, you give up one thing, but you find the next thing. And it could be, you know, you give up alcohol, but you find sex and or gambling or, you know, whatever it is. And there's a lot of the big ones, but there's the little ones that I think you touched on where we all feel like we're recovering from something. Like, I think humanity is in recovery. Yeah, <laughs> and from disconnection you know, nature, right? Like so many things. And absolutely, those indigenous practices that that you know that wisdom of our ancestors on some level, um, depending on your ancestors, absolutely. But but like really that yeah that in in touch with rhythm and nature and wholeness. And so um, when I did the toolkit, I realized so one that embodiment piece right, our bodies are involved in recovery, which my um, experience in recovery had been very cerebral mm. and intellectual. Right. And although I appreciated a lo- some of the pathways there, I found that once I was really understood the nervous system and the body, I realized why so many people in these spaces were still so dysregulated and seeking external regulation at any cost, even if the cost was their life as the neuroaffective and relational model says it. So I want to give cre- you know, credit to them for, 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 you know, coming up with that, that, that we will, if we have a dysregulated nervous system, we will seek regulation at any cost, even if the cost is our life. And mm-hmm. so the example they give around that is like people will smoke cigarettes knowing that it will shorten their lifespan. But for those, you know, 10 seconds of relief, they'll do it. Right. So mm-hmm. that really blew me away first and foremost. And then I realized how much the toolkit impacted my own recovery trajectory and, um, the second piece was a trauma-informed lens, and none of the spaces in recovery I were in were even acknowledging that trauma, you know, early childhood trauma had any correlation to substance use disorder or, um, you know, um, alcohol use disorder or any behavior compulsion. So I really found that that was a huge disservice that we don't talk about, that trauma is a huge player, you know, if you know the adverse childhood experience test, right? Like mm-hmm. there is data and statistics to correlate that. Like I don't have to go back and, and name them all, but people can look it up if they want to, but like it's really is directly related. And, um, and so that was a huge piece. And then the third piece was social justice, which, you know, the, the resilience toolkit is grounded in social justice and really taking into account people's ecology and what they're living with, and especially here in North America, you know, we're in an incredibly racial, racial, racially capitalized society that, you know, it's like, I feel like the recovery community I was in was, was picking up the babies coming down the river, but no one was asking, why are the babies in the river in the first place? Mm-hmm. And the social justice and recovery to me is like, I'm not okay if we're not all okay. And yes, people can have the kind of retreat or emotional cathartic experience of going to rehab and being taken out of their environment, but they're going to go back into their environment. And, and if there's, and you know, mostly brown and black, 
you know, melanated bodies in this country are being adversely impacted by racism and, and um, systems of oppression and state-sanctioned violence. And yet they are the least represented in the rooms of recovery that I was in. So I found that to be a huge problem. And when I started speaking up early, you know, quarantine that like, racism is not an outside issue in these spaces. I was, you know, met with a lot of, a lot of anger and denial and a lot of other things that forced me to kind of create the toolkit for recovery. Basically, that's a very long answer. No, it's, <laughs> no, it's a great answer. And I think, cause I see things in that way too. Like I, you know, because I came from a social justice background and then went into a kind of a more wellness space. Like I think mm. that for me, always having the system lens made sense on a public health level. Like, yeah. And now the data correlates, right? Like even around stress and rest and how, and what that mm-hmm. does with chronic disease, what that does with life expectancy, with addiction, with any of these things. I think it's like, it's absolutely a conversation that has to be had. And I think we're nuanced enough and practiced enough now to be able to say, yes, I'm in recovery. And at the same time, I recognize the privilege that's protected me from so many yes. other things, right? That I that I could yes. have potentially been dealing with in this life stage that I'm not because of the color of my skin and the education I've had and all of those things. So I think it's wonderful to have uh, to hear that, to hear the journey. And I I guess for those who don't, to take a step back, for those who don't know about the toolkit, could you explain a little bit more about it? And then, yeah, yeah. I want to talk more about um, recovery. Yeah, absolutely. So NCAM and Defo is the founder and president of Lumos Transforms and our sign- we do like really deep embodied transformative change work for self and world actualization and we work with organizations and with individuals but our signature workshop is the resilience toolkit so that's kind of what i i grounded the whole toolkit for recovery from and it's really um it is a set of tools like you know some mindfulness some movement some rhythmicity um, some body-based tools but at its heart, it's not really about the tools because there's so many tools out there, as you know, Meg, like there's mm-hmm. a thousand tools yeah. and and it really is the guiding questions that is the framework of this, this uh, I guess, approach to stress in your body that makes it so revolutionary, at least in my mind it was. And, you know, we come from probably a similar background in the wellness industry, but like being asked first, where am I on any stress map that I'm working with? Uh, where am I to begin a tool, right? First, like just asking that so I could know what tool to pick and why gave me so much self-agency and efficacy over my own nervous system and my body first and foremost. But then secondly, asking, is it matching the moment was hugely revolutionary too, because never had I asked, is my stress response valid? Mm. Like, right? Because if when you're working with and especially marginalized populations and vulnerable populations, their response is valid, like a lot of the time, yeah. right? Like, and also some of my responses were very valid moving through this work. And so to be able to recognize that it's not a disorder or a pathology, I just might have the right response, but it might be also, you know, the right response for the wrong thing, you know, just being able to mm-hmm. discern that in my ecology and going like sometimes that I absolutely need to be 
hypervigilant. I'm a woman walking down the street alone late at night, right? Or I'm a person of a melanated body in this country and there's a police officer there. Like, absolutely, you need to be hypervigilant. Like, this is not about let's stay calm and carry on. You know, it really is about like, when do we need to access our nervous system and when do we need to rest? And like you said, like that knowing when to rest and how to rest effectively comes into play into that. So that like, that's the second question, I guess. And the third question of the guiding questions is, you know, if I'm not matching the moment, let's say I have some complex PTSD as a lot of us do. Right. Or especially in recovery, if recovery folks are hearing this, I think complex PTSD is very prevalent in our community, but like, I might be having a response that's actually, you know, something to do with my childhood or intergenerational, or it could be, you know, like in my DNA, right? It might not, it might even be pre-verbal. I don't know, but the chance there is to say, wow, is this really matching the moment? If it's not, like I always say to people when I work with them, I'm like, if it's matching the moment, thank your body. You're, it's doing what it should, right? Like, thank you. You're protecting me. You're doing absolutely what you need to do. Even if I'm completely frozen and shut down, that might be absolutely where I need to be. Mm. Um, Like we were working with some chaplains in New York at kind of the height of the pandemic. And a lot of them were like, we're so frozen and shut down at work. And we're like, absolutely. That makes sense. You could not feel everything at work, right? Like when you're there, but when you get home, you don't still want to be that frozen and that shut down. No, no, and right. I love I love the mapping piece so much because I think that's the golden ticket to me, right? Like when you can yeah. map, like this is a disproportionate response without mm-hmm. judgment, right? Like I think mm-hmm. I think about the recoveries plural that I've been on and through and uh, for me it was the embodiment piece was one thing but then like the embodied self-compassion piece was the hardest mm. and I yes. think that like so many folks I know who have been in recovery like have I don't know I have, one of my therapists once called it like a shame core you know like oh yes is like is, is yes for of us is, is shame and so yeah. um I think self-compassion and and just <laughs> I guess that I remember the moment that the illusion that I would ever like get there was kind of like (laughs) you know that moment of like oh yeah 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 like the the realization I guess that it would be a lifetime of yes rather than you know yeah rather than just doing it once and being okay forever and ever (laughs) oh absolutely and this this will come back to my my experience in that gold standard program was it felt very linear to me that you started you know, number one, you get to 12 and then you're done and you're good, supposedly, right? Like, mm. um, although that wasn't my experience, I went through the steps hundreds of times, it feels like, you know, mm-hmm. um, with different people always seeking a deeper spiritual experience I could not get. But what I found is that, like, you know, with the, because what we use in the toolkit um, for recovery is the, the trans theoretical behavior change model, which is really a spiral. And it kind of goes back to indigenous wisdom again. And there's a huge, a lovely group doing recovery work called, I th- believe they're the white bisons. I might be wrong about that, but they have a beautiful work around. They adapted the kind of gold standard in a recovery to a spiral and really indigenous wisdom that we are always spiraling up in our journey 
and that recovery is a journey. And with the behavior change model, it's a, it's a spiral of you're always like, not if, but when you're going to return to another stage of change. And so I think that takes that shame piece out that is so, I think sitting with the discomfort of shame in the body might be one of the hardest asks of our life, you know, to really sit with that and not try to numb because that's what the toolkit allows you to do is going to build that capacity, not necessarily to sit with shame because that's not something we really want to do, but it, we, you can also mitigate shame by understanding the spiral. And I think without glorifying or inviting relapse, but normalizing it, my question is always like, how do we normalize it without encouraging it? But to understand that it's not if, but when, and we kind of have maybe six or seven returns, they call them relapses in the behavior change model, but I hate that term. So I say return, returns, and then you pull into that, the, the al- there's something called alcohol, alcohol detriment effect and alcohol um, abstinence effect. Both those two things, one they will create what I call the fuckets where people, if they return to, you know, say they have a drink or they do the substance or they do the behavior or they do that, they'll go like, fuck it. I've just lost everything. So I'm going to now do it all instead. Cause, and that's shame, right? Mm. That's shame's really driving that. So there is a way to go like, Oh, I just did it once. Let me get back on board. I'm okay. I didn't lose anything. I'm on my journey, right? Like, I just think we have a lot less. I just hope that that's somewhere we can get to of like really um, honoring that there's a process. But I also know that different than other things, there are substances that will kill you if you use them again. So I I do not say this lightly, you know. Yeah, and I think within that is a conversation about, like, normalising our humanity as well, you know, like normalising mm-hmm. the emotional intensity that so few of us had uh, co-regulating forces around us when we're in those states. And I know that there's so much shame in building our culture, particularly like a colonial capitalist culture that mm-hmm. says that we shouldn't be human we shouldn't experience challenge we shouldn't experience... Um, those periods where we're reaching for the things that feel safe to us, you know, and I think there's so much repair that can come from acknowledging the beauty in our humanity and not not gaslighting or bypassing the experience but understanding seasons and, and cycles and understanding, like, you know, um, that every expression and every intensity kind of belongs in the human spectrum somewhere, you know. Yeah, absolutely. You reminded me too of like a story that I share in the toolkit for recovery about kind of how these tools can work with, with recovery. And I say like, and this, this goes a little against the sort of the dogma that I was, I was involved in, but you know, I had this one um, experience where it was like Christmas and I was a single mom, new single mom. And I'd been sober for about four years and, oh no, at that time, sorry, it was 11 years. And I had this thought, I I was driving my daughter to a Christmas party, right? And I had this thought to drink. 
And it was strong. It was like in the mental obsession realm. And I remember being like, yeah, I'm going to drink at this party because no one knew me there, right? They didn't know that I was sober. So it wasn't like I was going to be outed. But I paused, I pulled the car over. And because of my training and the toolkit for recovery and everything I'd been doing, I said, you know, this is interesting. So mind, you're trying to solve a problem. You're a problem solver. I know you are, right? Like I didn't shame myself. I didn't, you know, say you're bad or wrong or something's wrong with you for wanting to regulate. I just kind of said, why are you wanting to regulate? I got curious. And then I checked in with my body and I was like, oh my God, like I just lost my job (laughs) or I left my job actually because of cultural appropriation. That's a whole other story. But I just walked away from a job. I had no income. I would, you know, I was terrified. My body felt crunchy and horrible and full of fear. And then I went back to my brain. I said, you know what? That's not a bad, that's not a bad idea. It's worked in the past. I get it. Right. Like there's a reward pathway in my brain that when I feel this way, this will make it better. And I was like, and this is what I try to teach people in the toolkit recovery. I say, let's get in front of that pathway. So Mm -hmm. first of all, understand what state you're in. So I was like, I'm in full on fight flight. I'm activated. I'm anxious. I want to take the edge off. And then I say, so where do you want to go? Right. I want to take the edge off. I want to feel better. I want to feel relaxed. And then I just said, brain, like put a pin in it. You're not bad. You're not wrong. Just give me a second. Right. Give me a moment. Let me see if I can work with my body. And so then I, you know, pulled out of, you know, where I was parked and I drove for four minutes doing settling breath with just simply just extending my exhale longer to slow my heart rate down intentionally. And by the time I got to the party, the idea to drink was insane. Mm. So story follows state, right? Like Deb Dana's work around the polyvagal, like my thinking will change when my body changes and getting like people in the recovery community to understand that, that There's so much cognitive, there's just an emphasis on thinking differently. But what I try to say is your, once your body changes, you will think differently. Mm. Yeah, I love that. It's so interesting because I was thinking about it today. I wrote, um, wrote, I'm doing some consulting work around my background in violence against women. And I wrote Mm. a piece yesterday and then some pieces around it changed. And so I wrote it again today and my state was different. And so the whole thing has had a completely different feel, like a completely different yes. sense, right? It was so, and I think um, uh, I worked with a lot of folks and leaders around burnout in the social space. Oh, yes. You know, like I, I, I love teaching that the most gracious thing you can do is to make the decision not when you're, at the bottom of the spiral, but when you've had a breath and moved your body and just closed your eyes yeah. for a second, right? It's like the decision is going to be vastly different. And when you change yes. that internal state, the external flow really changes as well. And I just, yeah, the story follow state thing like totally changed my world when I understood that I wasn't at the, it wasn't happening to me anymore, you know? Yes, absolutely. I love that. And I love taking people through those prompts that Deb Dana offers, like the world is, and I am. Yeah. Cause it, there's so many light bulbs go off, right? Like, Oh wow. I say, what's the narrative you're making? The words you're using to describe your world right now will sometimes be the best inroad to knowing where they are right on that map, that nervous system map. Cause like you're saying, a lot of us may be, might be numb to what our body's feeling. So that might, not be an option so 
because we have cultures so based in story and narrative sometimes too. And I wish we actually had more story in our culture, but like being able to at least pick out the words you're using, the adjectives to describe your world can be a huge revelation to where, like, what's your home away from home look like, you know? Yeah. Oh gosh. It's just reminding me too of um, like how ineffective we are, you know, like from a, even though I just don't buy into the whole rampant productivity as a, as a, as a state of being. However, yeah. If you even took that lens, and I do this a lot in the social impact space where there's so much urgency and so much like, yeah. and I know NCAM's totally on the same page about this, and it's like, yeah, you all know like how much more efficient this would all be if we were doing <laughs> and we'd had a pause for connection with each other, you know, like, yes, what might be possible if that's the starting point rather than oh. each of us dragging in, like, I imagine each of us dragging in our. A car load of trauma and sitting yes. at the table with it and then just hurling it across the room at each other like I just feel like God it would be so much better yeah you reminded me too of uh, some the year I spent at this probation camp in downtown Los or just kind of in the city of commerce east of downtown Los Angeles but you know that was an, an incredible space to be in kind of pre the toolkit and after like, I feel like there's life before I met and Kim and the toolkit and there's life after. And, uh, you know, really interesting to kind of notice how that was sort of bifurcated by my time in this, um, this probation camp working with these young women and just to see like how jacked up people were in those spaces even the architecture and the buildings and the yeah. way people spoke and healing spaces are they yes no and just how much like it just blew my mind you know even probation officers having guns and things on them right like things that just kind of were very stark to me after doing the certification than they were before mm. yeah Gosh, I, there's so many things I want to say and I'm conscious of time, but two things I want to really know is to bring it back to for someone that maybe doesn't have this trauma lens or the resilience lens or the language that we're talking in, why do you believe we do what we do when we know what we know? Because our body drives, Right. Like, again, I will I will go back to we will seek regulation at any cost, even if the cost is our lives. And that's not a that's not a conscious decision. Right. That's a real like I feel like the body's sort of especially if we're turned off in our prefrontal cortex, which often happens when we're in a stress state, um, we seek external validation or external um, regulation right? Like these, everything is external because that's all we were taught or all we've seen. It's everything our parents did. It's everything media has shown us, right? That we need these external sources for regulation and validation. Um, for safety right? and connection, right? Like, yeah, really like it's, it's, it's even deeper than that. It's like, I'm just thinking about, um, my history around being a survivor of sexual assault and abuse and mm. food being the pathway for me, right? Very, yes. And then it became alcohol and then it became toxic relationships and then it became work and like so on and so forth. However, 
So that fundamental relationship between I feel unsafe in my body at this time and the start of the eating is correlated so clearly in my timeline that it's almost um, unimaginable that I could have ever thought that there wasn't a correlation, you know. And right. I, and I think that it's like it's not only that I just wanted validation or connect, like I, that made me feel safe. Like eating was yeah. for me. It was survival. It was probably comfort too, mm-hmm. right? Comfort. Like, yeah. and, and I, and I, yeah. And I, t- I have had people show up in the, the toolkit for recovery, right? With a myriad of, and I break it down this way. What's something you want to stop, but you can't and something you want to start, but you can't, we all have that list, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the real normalizing of any recovery space. I think because basically people were showing up with, disordered eating or reading romance novels too much right and we laugh at that and they go what but she was ignoring her children and you know not showing up for life and it was serious for her so just to acknowledge that you know it could be anything yeah but what are we using to soothe or comfort or help us wake up or help us escape and so that's where I go back to like What's really important for people in recovery, especially, I think, is to one, have that high self-awareness to know where you are on any map you're using. Like, I don't care if your your nervous system map is bodies of water or weather systems or art pieces or music or whatever it is, right? It doesn't have to be the technical sympathetic activation or mm-hmm. dorsal vagal shutdown, right? That's like, doesn't even matter just to know where you are when you want to use something and what's it going to do for you. So some people want to wake up. Mm. Some people want to feel alive. Some people want to feel more motivated. They want more dopamine, right? And they're more in that shutdown free state. So that's a whole different sort of, I don't know what the word is, but like that's a whole different beast than say someone who just wants to take the edge off and relax and chill out because they're so stuck in hypervigilance and sort of that like on mode, which can also be, you know, diagnosed if you want to use diagnostic terms as generalized anxiety disorder, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, This sort of sense that you're always on and you're humming, which is the one I relate to. And, And I'll just say that some of those states take longer to come out of And it's not as sexy and glamorous to come out of them as you would think, because when you leave the hypervigilance and we go back to safety, right? Like it can feel very unsafe to feel relaxed Mm. because there's something called relaxation induced anxiety, right? And it can feel like, no, I'm safe when I'm hypervigilant. This is not safety. So Right. Gentle embodiment. This is why the emotional catharsis model is not sustainable because when you re-traumatize the body in storytelling, you're re-traumatizing the body. Mm. It just, um, it was just reminding me so much of when you said the body drives, like just that in and of itself is such a beautiful reminder, you know, like Mm -hmm. I think particularly, I don't know, 10 years ago when everyone was talking about manifesting and and mind states and, you know, just change your thinking and like so just different (laughs) for me at all, you know, because it's it's only a matter of time before there was a trigger that would create the flood of and therefore the behaviour. So I think like 
just understanding that the body's driving, like, or is, you know, a dear friend might say, uh, um, a body keeping the score. Like, I just think mm. it's so mm-hmm. liberatory to remember. And also, as a culture, we're so disembodied that it's uh, possible to remember. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's why you have these. God bless them in, in some ways, but like these white colon, white male colonizers who are taking mm. this in deep indigenous wisdom and making it make sense to our, you know, collegiate brain and our, you know, are wanting to hear it from the experts, right? But if we really break it down, this, like the body keeps the score, all these incredible somatic wisdom pieces, I really want to honor the indigenous elders that carried those pieces right like Mm. and carried them at a high cost yeah you know their lives and their their children's lives and onwards like just to bring back that you know the social justice piece like where's this where is this wisdom really coming from because Mm. it's always been here yeah Totally. Oh, I love this conversation. I'm curious as we as we wrap up, what is your vision for the world? And I guess how are you currently exploring or expressing that, not just through your work, but across multiple facets of your expression? Yeah. I mean, obviously there's so many. I having now been a facilitator of the resilience toolkit and the resilience toolkit for recovery, and now I'm hold advanced certification at Lumos and I'm also uh, part of the certification mentorship team. And I, I feel like I have not found a space or place or, or sector or culture where this framework is not completely foundational and applicable. And so I guess my dream would be that we all enter like some of these heady conversations of, of anti-racism and that where, that we first, especially white people, you know, learn how to have self-awareness and self-regulation so they're not re-traumatizing people of the global majority. And also that people are able to hold themselves in storytelling spaces where they can, you know, know when to share a story and when not to and not feel coerced into being openly vulnerable when they're not ready. And also obviously like children learn self-awareness and self-regulation at a young age so that they don't have to rely on external sources to regulate themselves. But I guess even more than that, it's that we dismantle racism and systems of oppression because Mm -hmm. if we don't do that, like none of us are okay. It really, I just don't understand how like white people don't get that dismantling racism in any form in any country benefits everyone yeah and wellness that is I don't know stolen off the backs of black and yes this doesn't it's not wellness that's not well-being that's um, yeah <laughs> that's something totally yeah. different. I don't even have the words for it it's just not that and yeah I love, I love this idea of something I'm really exploring a lot of the last 12 months um, as I've been really like untangling capitalism's Mm. strange hands from within my own nervous system is like if we stop reaching for other things but we fall into each other in those moments you know and that Mm. each of us had the tools and capacities to hold each other I think it would look like a really different world you know instead of like 
this crushing pressure that we feel to perform or conform or belong in some way that just creates this inward pressure that of course the only way out of that is through external stimulation but instead we had the grace and the dignity and the compassion to just fall into each other's arms and be like this is really hard like this being a human thing is really difficult and I'm struggling and can you hold me and that person not to be activated or yeah um, or, or like trying to make us feel better in ways that just bypass or don't acknowledge what our true feelings are. I think that is what I love about this work so much. Yeah, and, and you just reminded me too of a vision of like, I know that, you know, I don't know what the sort of future vision of this is, but I do know that if there was a way our neighbours and our community to be able to come together more regularly and know who our neighbors are and know who these people are and be able to share resources. Like I really feel like, you know, coming together and celebrating and marking, you know, rituals. And I know there's like other communities that are doing this, right. And and usually they, and maybe they have less resources. And so they are able, it may share them for that reason, but I just want to, you know, notice like how much more connected there's a humanistic connection in those spaces that is really lacking in some of capitalism, right? Where everything gets hyper-individualized and hyper-isolated. And, and so just a, a dream of like going back to community gatherings and communal dancing and, and movement of our bodies and relationship to each other and celebrating things together. I think I, that's something I have on my mind too. I'm looking into the Los Angeles Public Bank Fund and, you know, ways to just kind of be more about, you know, there's like the world needs to change, obviously, but we know that like, how can I do that in my little community? How can I create a different system in just, just maybe my few neighbors? I don't know. That that feels revolutionary to me as well. A hundred percent. I think so many other guests as well on this season talked about localization, local economies, local futures. And I think that's the natural byproduct, right? Like when we yeah. disattach from having an identity that needs continual validation and needs to uphold the values of productivity and power over and all of these mm. domination kind of, ways of being it does actually open up a whole lot of space like when my worth is dismantled or disunattached from my net worth like there is much mm. more space for my beingness mm-hmm. to be in community and in relationship and for me to orient around that you know rather than these other things which inherently are built on a society of of lack and scarcity and not enough and trauma and like all the things that we've talked about <laughs> yeah and I also just want to also acknowledge my privilege in being able to like you know romanticize that maybe right like I just want to say too that there's a lot I hold a lot of privilege being a, a white woman in this country and I'm I'm aware of that and I acknowledge it so mm, yeah like yeah opting out is great if you can afford it and so many folks Mm -hmm. just can't it's Mm -hmm. just a reality Aaron thank you so much I've just loved the conversation and I'm just wondering as we close for someone that might be listening that is on one of those moments on the bathroom floor um, Mm -hmm. based on your own experience what words do you feel most called to share at this point you know what's coming to my mind is tattooed on my arm but and it, it sounds trite I want to say this too shall pass like but but 
not to say that it, that it, not to mark the moment, but to know that states change and thinking changes and emotions change. Emotions last really kind of about 90 seconds generally. Mm -hmm. So if you're on the floor in that moment, you, you will get a break at 90 seconds, whether how long that break is or not, but you, you will have waves. Mm. Right. And, and to know that if you're peaking at the top of the wave, you will come down. Mm. And so just to know that it's a ride and it's a wave and we're all on it and we all feel what you're feeling and we've all been there and we've all ridden to the peak and toppled over and maybe gotten caught in the whitewash and all sorts of metaphors of surfing and wave riding, but like just to know you're not alone and, I've been there. Obviously you've been there and we will be there again at some point. And so I think just knowing that and getting to become a better surfer of those waves is my goal. Not to think that waves won't come, but can I surf them better? Mm. Thank you so much for sharing those words. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Mm.